Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hi, Melissa. How are you doing today? I'm good, Lisa. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Yeah, so today's topic is tips for advocating for your child at school. And so we have both done, as we've mentioned before, a myriad of different education solutions for our kids, but both of us have had kids in public school and both of us have had to advocate for our child at school. And it can be a little tricky. It really can. Yeah. This year I have two daughters in high school, including one of them is my foster daughter. Both of my boys are in middle school this year, which is really hard to believe. I can't believe my boys are growing up. I don't have anybody little anymore. I know. Do you feel like there's like a light at the end of your child rearing tunnel? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of years remaining. I mean, middle school. Did you hear me say that they're in middle school? That's right. There is, um, I actually think middle school is one of the hardest times of life. It's just a hard time. So, yep, two middle schoolers and, you know, what guy who's going into sixth grade? We got a lot of years left here with these guys. Trying to think optimistically, but you're right. These are some of the toughest years. So, well, our guest today is Sandy Lerman. And Sandy and I met online a couple of years ago. We actually were both kind of in the midst of a little bit of crisis with our kids. She's a single adoptive mom to a teenage son. She has been an educator. She's been in and out of the classroom. She's done all different levels of education, including adult education. And she has credentials in ESL or English as a second language. Um, I think she even knows sign language. Her son is profoundly deaf. So On top of all of that, I mean, this lady has a resume, the length of my arm, but she is now a full-time parent coach and parent educator, and she is the creator of the HeartStrong Parenting Program. But the reason that she was such a great choice for a guest for our interview today is that she is now also an education consultant. So she is going to bring us just some really amazing wisdom and great tips for how to advocate for our children in school. Yeah, it's great. It's a great interview. I mean, I think those of us who have kids in school, we know how important it is to have a positive relationship with the administration, with the teachers, but sometimes it's tricky to navigate. You know, our, some of our kids have really unique needs and they aren't necessarily visible needs. There are things that, you know, the teachers might expect our kids to be able to function as well as everybody else because they really don't understand um, some of the unique things that come with trauma or whatever kinds of diagnoses our kids may have. So this is just a great interview to help give us some guidance. So without further ado, here's our interview with Sandy. So Sandy, in one of your recent newsletters, you mentioned you had become an education consultant. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, you would be such a valuable podcast guest because you have so much experience working with kids who come from trauma and I just feel like navigating the school system is always such a hot topic because people there don't always understand our kids. It's that time of year. Our kids, a lot of kids are starting to settle into new school routines, new teachers, maybe even new schools. So I'm just really thankful that you're here. And so thanks so much for 
your valuable time today. Thank you so much, Melissa. It is a pleasure to be here. I am so excited about your new project and your podcast and that you're providing so many wonderful resources for families. It's so important. Families are really needing this. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So before we jump into the really meaty stuff, could you just tell us, kind of give us a primer, what your role is as an education consultant? Like what is that? People that do that, what do they do? What is their job? A lot of families, when they're working with the school, they find that there are, there may be certain things about the school system that they're not familiar with. They don't maybe know the territory. They don't know how to navigate the system. Basically what I do is I provide education and resources for families to help them do a better job of navigating their rights, being able to advocate for their child, being able to get the supports they need, helping the school understand what a trauma-informed education looks like. And then if the child qualifies for an IEP or for a 504 plan, then I can help them sort of prepare the kinds of accommodations or maybe even modifications they might need for their student. What's the difference between a 504 and an IEP? And what does IEP even stand for? Sure. That's a great question. A lot of families may never have had to navigate that system. So we'll start with that. So an IEP is stands for Individualized Education Plan. And students are eligible for an IEP if they have an identified disability, which can be a number of things. It could be a physical disability. It could be a cognitive disability. It could be an emotional disability. So a lot of our kids who have trauma, some of them Uh, have pretty clear physical or cognitive disabilities that are easily identified. Then there are the emotional pieces that a lot of our kids bring with them that maybe it's not a visual, something that's that you can see obviously by just looking at them, but these are things that they bring with them every day to school and they may have severe anxiety, they may be having explosive behaviors, they may have some social emotional issues, things that are going on like that. So we want to look at how is this affecting their ability to access the regular curriculum? Is this impairing them to the extent that we would consider it a disability or not. And there are a number of evaluations that the school can do, or you can get an independent evaluation to determine that. So a 504 plan is a little bit, I guess I would say it has less teeth to it in the sense that it's not, you don't have an annual meeting or what we call a case conference here in Indiana. You don't have an annual IEP meeting. You just have um, a document that states this student needs something, pull accommodation like preferential seating, or they need to use closed captions if they have a hearing impairment, or there's just something a little bit different that they need, but it's not something you need to have a meeting to determine specialized services or specialized accommodations. Okay. Yeah. So my understanding also is IEPs are legally binding. So I know the schools don't always do a great job of accommodating once there is an IEP, but technically they're supposed to. And what's the legal status of a 504? Is it more like just suggestions? Like, is there a, like you said, it doesn't have as much teeth. So what does that mean? What that means is that it's, it's not, you don't have a meeting about it. It's not, you're not, you don't have a team that gets together to discuss how it's going to be implemented. It's just a document that has, you know, I I mean, it's still, it's still a legal document. It's still something that needs to be enforced, but it's not, I guess you don't have as much input on it and you don't call meetings. Like if you have an IEP, you can call a meeting anytime you want. And I frequently call meetings like I rarely go a year with only one meeting, which is, that's the legal requirement. You have to have an annual meeting, but you can call meetings as often as you want if you're concerned that the IVP is not being implemented correctly. Okay. So I guess that's, that's the difference. But there are other laws that are just about access to the curriculum that all students have, uh, should be, you know, beginning access to the curriculum, whether they have an IEP or not. And so even if your student doesn't qualify with a disability 
or for a 504 plan, that school is liable to make sure that your child is getting a free and appropriate public education. That's what we call FAPE. Um, and if they're not getting an appropriate education, then, you know, we're going to need to have some conversations and see what that looks like to help that student. Yeah, I guess the keyword there is appropriate. And I guess that can probably mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So, but that's why you're here to help us navigate all of what that could look like. So if I'm a parent, I know my Mm -hmm. child is struggling at school. Things aren't going well. You know, maybe it's behaviors, maybe it's grades. You know, there's lots of ways to kind of, kind of know. Maybe it's just mother's intuition. We're struggling at school. What's the very first thing that you recommend parents do as soon as they're concerned? I recommend for any child who has been adopted or who has early childhood trauma for whatever reason, I think it's really important to establish communication with the educators that are working with your child, regardless of whether they even have any struggles or not, just from the get-go. And it's that's so important because then when you do see problems creeping up, <clears throat> then you've already established a relationship with that educator. And then you, it's not like, hey, I'm calling you to complain about the way you're teaching my child for the very first time. Uh, having a relationship with the teacher, I always have a meeting every year with my child's new teachers. And th- I know they're very busy. I'm, I'm also a former classroom teacher myself. So they're incredibly busy at the beginning of the year. They don't really love to have meetings about students at the beginning of the year. But if you can at least get in with a counselor or the main classroom teacher, depending on whether elementary or high school, that's really important. If you're just, if it's the middle of the school year or it's like toward, you know, they're starting to get homework, they're starting to get tests, it's maybe, you know, end of September, early October, and you're seeing red flags, you need to to have conversations with your child and also with the teacher without any preconceived notions about what's going on. Because if you go in like gangbusters and you're like, hey, you know, you don't, you're not teaching my kid the way you're supposed to teach my, you know, you need to keep an open mind gather the facts, gather the data, find out what the student is saying, find out what the teacher's saying. Don't blame anybody or start, you know, going in. Yeah. I mean, there are times when you need to, you know, use that back pocket sort of mother bear energy, but reserve that for when it's needed. Right. So start off, start off on a Yes. Use it only when, you know, when needed, because you don't want to use, use up all your cards all at once. So start with a collaborative approach. Sit down with a teacher, get a sense of where they're coming from. Give them a sense of your child. It helps sometimes. I know for, especially for elementary kids, it's sometimes nice to send, you know, maybe send a little biography with a picture of your child and things that they're good at, things that they're their strengths, something that the teacher can connect with that child. Because as you know, that relationship is so essential for the child to feel safe and to feel welcomed in the classroom. So if you can say, hey, my kid really loves dinosaurs, is really into that. Oh, great. So then that's something the teacher can connect with on a personal level or, you know, a certain movie that the child has seen or something that they're good at. Maybe they're good at sports or good at art, something that they connect can connect with. So that teacher has a way to build rapport with the child because once the teacher has rapport with the child, then we can talk about, okay, what are some of the things that aren't working? you know, this, this isn't working for my kiddo. He's not able to focus. He's not able to concentrate. He's feeling shamed, you know, when he's told that he's wrong or he's getting anxious during a test or he's needing to move around or he's hitting other people in the class or behavior issues, whatever the issues are, then you can have a a nice conversation with the teacher about it and see if you can come up with a plan. 
if it's not working, just talking to the teacher and the teacher doesn't seem to have the time or the interest in accommodating your child and supporting them, then you may need to then take the next step and then contact the building administrators or the special education department, discuss with them your concerns and that you would like an evaluation done for your child. Now the school has the right to decide whether they, you know, are going to do the evaluation. Um, you can always get an independent evaluation as well, but it's better to be collaborative with your school and kind of discuss with them how, how and what kinds of evaluations are going to be done. You want to request all of this in writing. Anytime you have a conversation with a teacher or with an administrator, you want to, even if it's by phone, that's fine, but then back it up with documentation. Send a quick email and say, hey, remember today we talked about XYZ. Here is what we decided here are the next steps that we've planned I look forward to working with you on those next steps right so you're constantly documenting all these conversations because later if it becomes contentious and then there are some disagreements and you can say well remember on this date here's an email where we discussed this and this so you'll have that document 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 always keep keep a file get a three ring notebook keep all your IEP or 504 documents in there keep examples of your students work comments the teacher writes on the papers keep all that in a place where you when you go to the meeting you open up your folder and you have it all there and they go, oh, this mom knows what she's doing. She's very organized. She's not just coming in and getting emotional about her child. Yeah, those are great tips. So when you approach a teacher at the beginning of the year, how much information, because I know there's, you know, we talk a lot about protecting our kids' stories. So what's the best way to open communication channels with a teacher, but also be really respectful of our child's story? Do you have any tips for that? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, Melissa, because I think there's a really fine line between being informed and being aware of a child's challenges and maybe oversharing and having it be something that's private. Like what you said, there are some, some of our kids have very difficult histories. Maybe there's been abuse or neglect and you might not have any baby pictures if the child was adopted. So there's lots of things that can be very sensitive issues. What I generally do, I start with a strengths-based approach. I try to kind of give the teachers some positive things about my child that they can develop that rapport with. But then I also will give them sort of a general, maybe I'll share an article with them or I'll share some information, some resources with them that are really short, sweet, to the point, not that you don't, don't hand them a book when you walk in the first meeting, say, read this book and then we can talk. Don't do that. You can suggest if they like to read, you can suggest books. But I think like short and sweet articles, there's some really great resources and I can share those with you. You can add them to your show notes as well from the Attachment Trauma Network has a really nice graphic that I like to share with teachers. Um, you know, I have an article that I've written. So there's lots of things you can share with them. But I think the most important thing is just say, my kiddo has, has some trauma and that affects the way he or she is able to learn in your classroom. It might look like he's being really defiant or angry or uncooperative, but it could be that he's just really scared or he's just really anxious. So please be aware that the behaviors that you're seeing oftentimes just are, an, you know, a symptom of an underlying emotional issue that he's having. Now, if you have a diagnosis from a qualified mental health professional, that can be used as part of the disability eligibility for the IEP. And so if your child has post-traumatic stress disorder, has a diagnosis of anxiety or depression or reactive attachment disorder, or any of those disorders that are in the DSM, those are things you can say, look, this isn't just my opinion. This is an actual diagnosis. And so we need to be aware that this is affecting my child. But if you don't have that diagnosis, you can just say, you know, my child was just recently adopted or we, he's been in my home for three years. There is history 
history before that. So I just want you to be aware of that. Um, please don't call a lot of attention to it in class, but just be aware of it. And if there's any questions that you have, please contact me. And in fact, that's one of the things I highly recommend for parents is just be in contact with the teacher as often as you can. Don't send them long, you know, 20 page emails, just really quick, short, to the point, like, hey, you know, and some positive, some questions, you know, try to mix it up a little bit so it's not always complaining, but offer them like a window into what's going on with your kiddo so that they're aware. If the child had a massive meltdown, three-hour meltdown, they might not be able to finish their homework that night. And, you know, when they walk in the door the next day, is the teacher going to jump all over them for not finishing their homework? That's probably not going to be a good plan for the day. So you may want to say to the teacher, you know, there may be evenings when we just have to focus on family time because we're still working on attachment. We're working on healing some of these traumas that my child has been through. So please be very understanding. I will try to email you or call you or leave a message somehow, let you know if that happens, but please be flexible in your approach with my child. Perfect. So started off the school year, you've started a communication channel with your child's student. Even if it's not the beginning of the year, it's not too late to do that. No, um, you know, you, you've started to fact find, try to keep mama bear in her case until absolutely <laughs> necessary. So you're, you know, just asking questions, being curious, you know, both with the teacher, with the child, you know, perhaps there's some communication and you're getting some understanding from the teacher, you know, yes, there's some struggles. Perhaps you can collaborate for some things, you know, just independently that you and the teacher can work out. In a perfect world, that's the way it would be. Right, 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 right. right. So <laughs> pretend that doesn't happen. And I know you said, you know, let's pretend to, go to the, to go to the um, administration if they won't even have the conversation with you. But let's say even they had the conversation and sure. and maybe they're not even disagreeing with you. They're agreeing that something else needs to happen. So then what's that next step after that? We talked about evaluations, that that would probably be yeah. maybe the next step. So then yeah. what happens after evaluations have happened? Well, again, you need to document that you've made the request. You made, make, you made the request in writing. So they have, you know, depending on your, there's some federal laws, there's some state laws, depending on how all that works in your state, they have a certain amount of time by which they must complete the evaluation. They can't just say, oh yeah, we'll do that, you know, in the spring, if it's the fall, right? They can't put you off. They have to make, you know, action towards getting this accomplished. So you want to follow up. We'll make sure things are moving along. Don't let them put you off. A lot of times, just to, as an FYI, um, if your child was internationally adopted and they speak English as a second or a new language, sometimes they're very reluctant to do any kind of evaluation on a child because they don't speak English fluently enough to have a valid test score on whatever the test is that they're giving. That's actually illegal for them to do, to put off doing an evaluation based on solely because the child speaks a different language from English. So don't let them use that as an excuse. Yes, they're going to have to do some alternative kinds of assessment. That's something that I have a lot of experience with because I taught English as a second language for many years. And the psychiatrist, or the, pardon me, the school psychologists were very reluctant to do assessments on my kids when it was clear to all of us that there was a disability in addition to a language difference. So don't let them put you off. But if your child was recently adopted and they don't have an IEP, they don't have a 504, you have no idea what's going on, then you do need to have that evaluation done. Once that's done, they will have some data. They will share it with you. They'll call you together. Everybody, you'll have a meeting with the school psychologist, with the classroom teacher. At least one classroom teacher should be present, usually an administrator. You also want to make sure that whoever is in charge of the funding for special education is at your meeting. 
Hmm. A lot of times they don't go to the meetings. It's just the teacher or the special ed person in your building, but they don't have the authority to make funding decisions. It's actually against the law in my state, and I believe in most states, for them just to say, well, we can't give you that because we don't have the authority to pay for that. And we'll, we'll, call, we'll call the person who's in charge of that and ask them if it's okay. The person who is in charge of that needs to be at the meeting so they can hear the story that goes along with why you're requesting a certain resource or a certain whatever it is that you're asking for in the IEP. They need to be at the meeting so that they hear the needs and they hear the discussion. A good parent education consultant can help you kind of navigate that. Like, what are your rights? What can you ask for? And so you need to be really informed about what your rights are. You want to get on websites that have that information. You want to either hire a consultant or talk to your parent information center. Um, that's another resource that I'll give to you to put to the show notes, but find out what you're allowed to ask for what your rights are be prepared have all that before you go to these meetings because if you just walk in and say yeah whatever you say is fine they're going to give you the minimum requirement and maybe nothing at all they might say well he's doing fine he's getting c's in all his classes and yeah but he's also coming home and having massive meltdowns as soon as he walks in the door because he's so stressed out about the testing and so many things going on so you may be seeing things at home that they're not seeing at school i believe it's important to have two different kinds of allies on your team. You want somebody in the school that really believes you and believes in your child and understands what's going on. That's why you want to develop a good relationship with the teacher. But if the teacher's not the one, if, you, if you're finding that the teacher, you're kind of butting heads with the teacher, you may want to look to another person in the school that could be an ally for you. Maybe the school counselor is a little bit more trauma-informed. Maybe the assistant principal. There could be some other person in your school district who works with, a lot of times special educators understand about emotional challenges. So you want to find somebody who can kind of navigate the system internally for you at your school. Then you also want to have an ally outside of the school, which in our case was our mental health professional. We have a counselor who was working very closely with my kiddo and would come either come to meetings, which was fabulous because not a lot of times they don't have time in their schedule or they just can't do that. But either who could attend the meeting in to support what you're saying about your child's mental health needs or who can write you a beautiful letter stating these are my, you know, this is what I'm seeing. I've been working with this family. This is what this child needs. This is what, you know, will help him be successful in the, in this classroom. So we've done both. We've had mental health professionals at the meeting and we've had them um, just send a letter. Letters can be very powerful. And I do that for my, the families that I coach and that I work with and I do educational consulting for, I have written letters just stating, you know, this is, what's going on with this child. This child was recently adopted. This child has these issues going on. I've worked closely with this family. Here are my recommendations. Just having a letter like that from somebody who's not the parent is, is huge because the parent, you know, they, they think that we all are just, you know, we think our children are special snowflakes and different from all the other kids and they need, you know, as the parent, they feel like you're coming into the meeting with a bias. So if you can show them, no, it's not just me, this professional person also says that this child needs this. So I find that that's very effective to help you, you know, not just get what you want, but also to advocate for what your child needs to be successful. That's what we're all, hopefully that's what everybody wants. Yeah, we have definitely used that in our situation for our family. And we've even found like as many letters as you can gather. So we've had, you know, maybe yeah. a therapist and a psychiatrist and maybe someone who did a neuropsych eval. You know, like you said, documentation is so 
it's key. It so, really so is key because I, I don't know about you, but I am an emotional person and I almost, I mean, I bring tissues with me, but they usually just put a box next to me because I will probably <laughs> cry at some point during the meeting because it's just so, you know, you want your child to feel happy. You don't want them to be anxious and scared and bullied and confused and frustrated. You don't want that for your child. And so when they're saying, well, you know, we can't do this, this and that. And you're saying, but my child needs this and that. And they say, well, we can't, you, it, you just feel, sometimes you feel so powerless. So when they see the emotional mom crying, please give my child, it, it doesn't have the same effect as being very calm, giving evidence, showing the support, showing that this is, you know, this is just the data. This isn't just me crying because I want everything for my baby. So I know you mentioned a bunch of different people that are ideal to have at meetings. And my experience is that, you know, even just coordinating the teacher and my schedule was like a nightmare. And so getting everyone in one room was so, so hard. So what are some other tools I know in our, and maybe this is national, in our area, we could request to record the meeting and we actually would both record the the school system would record any meetings we had. And then I had a little, you know, I got a recorder off of Amazon, just a little pocket recorder and I would stick in the center of the table. And that way, if I had to advocate for us, you know, with that person who had the keys to the funding or, you know, needed to run it by or let our therapist listen to it so she could suggest other things or write a letter accordingly. Um, Are there any other tools like that that are helpful if you can't get all the key players ideally in the same room at the same time? I've never resorted to recording. I think that's a great idea. It can make you appear to be a little adversarial if you say, I'm going to record everything you say. Sometimes people get, it scares them off. But if you're at the point where you've had two or three meetings and you're not getting anywhere, then, then that's when you do want to pull out sort of the more, um, you know, like be, you're, you're being very serious about this and you need, you know, we need to make sure that we're all on the same page. I think, I think having the letters, having people write letters, bringing that evidence, I think bringing examples of the child's work, you know, that you have or examples of like a, you know, a worksheet or something that the child struggled with and you can, you can bring that in. I think having the child come to the meeting is really helpful. Now, I don't always have my child sit through the entire meeting because I've been known to have four or five hour long meetings at, at times. So, and <laughs> in one school, we decided that we would just break it up into two days because they knew it was going to take that long. So like, let's just schedule the two days now and we'll table it in the middle and we'll finish next time. That way everybody was able to, you know, get it in their day. But Hopefully, yeah, hopefully you don't have those epic, you know, long, long meetings that my kiddo had, but we, ours are much shorter now because we're all like, we all know what the story is and I have a good relationship with the people that I'm working with. Having the child come, like what I used to do is I would have my kiddo come to the very beginning of the meeting and kind of talk about what his goals were and talk about what his desires were and his dreams were at the beginning of the meeting. And that really puts a face to the person that, that's on paper. A lot of the people at your meeting may or may not in, interact with your child on a daily basis. If it's an administrator and your child's not in the office every day for behavior issues, you know, they might see them often for that reason, but otherwise they might not really know. And they might just look at test scores and think, okay, this kid is just, just incapable of functioning based on the test scores. But then when they meet the child and they see how well they interact with people in the room or like they get a different 
you know, it gives them a different flavor of what's going on. So I think it's really powerful to have your student come with you if they can, but you have to gauge whether they can sit still during a meeting or if they're going to be heavy behavior issues and the age and maturity level, all that comes into play as well. But I had my kid in meetings from the very beginning. And at that time, he didn't really have any English at all. He's also deaf. So he didn't, was still learning sign language. I mean, he was in the meeting, but I just wanted them to see this is the child that we're talking about. You can bring pictures, um, showing them artwork that your child has done, you know, things that are just really powerful that tell the whole story of the child to give that emotional impact instead of just bawling and crying, but like to just show them a positive influence as well. Yeah. I love the idea of just giving them that name to the face because some of these people sit through IEP meetings all day long. And like you yeah. said, they, you know, you know your child, you have that emotional attachment. And so it's easy. I can imagine as an administrator yeah. or a guidance counselor, it'd be easy to just, you know, kind of forget that, you know, these are other people's kids. You know, yeah. Well, struggling. I can tell a story about that. We had, my kiddo has had some issues with bullying and being and having school refusal because he was so terrified of what was going on in the hallways and people were harassing him. And we had some issues with attendance for that reason. He was terrified to get on the bus, terrified to go to school. So we had a lot. So we're working through that combination of homebound instruction, partial days, lots of, lots of trying to figure out a way to make this work for this kiddo. And they really, I felt like the school really wasn't getting it. Like they thought I was just coddling him and letting him sleep in and hang out at home and like that I wasn't being that strict parent to try to get my child to come to school. What really helped was when I brought my child to to the meeting and he was there at the meeting and they could see that he was actually there and was engaging with them and talking with them and that it wasn't that he was avoiding school, that he just really had this anxiety and that he really wanted to be at school, but that he just had this overwhelming frustration with school. So it was very powerful for him to show them to me. And they were also surprised that he came because they thought he was just hanging out at home, playing video games, doing nothing all day. Wow. Yeah. And like you said, it doesn't have to be the whole meeting. It could just be five or 10 minutes at the beginning for your child to have a voice. And then, and we've had that with our daughter too, where we would invite her to just 10 or 15 minutes. And I think most kids can handle that, you know, yeah, um, yeah. just just come and, and be present. So what yeah. a great tip. You know, we've talked to the teacher, we've gotten evaluations. Now you've had an IEP meeting or, or developed a 504. And we're going to make sure that folks listening have a chance to download a list of lots of different accommodations, which walking through all of those could probably be its own separate interview. But then what tips do you have for following up? So once everyone's kind of agreed that this plan is in place, you know, in a perfect world, everything would be, you know, kind of smooth sailing from there. But what's kind of the follow-up loop once there have been accommodations and agreements made? What happens then? They need to implement the IEP as it's written. That is the legal requirement, right? So you just want to kind of stay in touch with the teacher, stay in touch with your student, talk to them, find out uh, how things are going, you know, have informal conversations, and then you can have more formal conversations. If you feel like the IEP is not being implemented, you can send emails and ask questions. I would say just keep the lines of communication open. The other thing I want to say is that in the whole process of developing an IEP, it's really important for, and I think we're seeing a trend in special education and in general education as well, towards not just making things special for that one kid, but also making the environment of the classroom a place where all kids can be successful, regardless of whether they're on an IEP or not. So really, all of these accommodations and 
things that we, you know, that you can suggest for your child's IEP, these are things that are going to benefit all the children in the classroom. So hopefully if you can get your teacher on board with a more trauma-informed approach to teaching, it may change their instruction for the entire classroom, which really is a win for everyone. So yeah, that's what I would encourage families to do is to really be part of this movement toward a more trauma-informed approach because it's, studies are showing that up to one-third to maybe even a half, maybe even more, depending on the school and the, and the kids, many kids are just flying under the radar who have trauma, who may not have mother bears like you and I going into these meetings and fighting for our children's rights. There are other kids around your child who are probably getting into fights and having all kinds of behavior issues because of their trauma. So if we can convince schools to join this trauma-informed revolution that I call hashtag trauma-informed revolution, they can really see a difference not only in my child and your child, but also in the entire classroom. So really, it's just a different paradigm, a different approach. Yeah, I love that because at the end of the day, the things that we do for our kids who need the trauma-informed education are really great for everyone. And yeah. But if we don't do the things for the trauma kids, then kind of the whole classroom falls apart. So there's really, I mean, it's really a win-win for everyone. There's really no good reason not to use kind of these more trauma-informed methods because they're, they're just good classroom management. Yeah. They're good relationship building things, which, you know, teachers really do want, I think, with their kids. You know, they, I think, they are up against a lot of other challenges, but I think at the end of the day, and so I think in some ways, especially if we approach it the right way, they'll feel really empowered to have some tools and have just a more peaceful classroom and, and just feel more satisfied at the end of the day that they didn't spend all day just, you know, managing and fighting kids. Right. And the reality is that in today's, in today's schools, teachers are under a tremendous amount of pressure and they are experiencing trauma as well because of the pressure that they're under. They've got so many different needs in the classroom. Many times they don't have all the resources they need to provide the special accommodations for all these kids. And they're feeling the pressure of, you know, some of them, their jobs, their livelihood depends on the test scores of their children. So they're very stressed out. And so really trauma-informed education is not just about meeting the needs of the children, but it's also about helping teachers to feel like they're empowered and they're supported as well. So I feel like we need to advocate for our teachers and support them in addition to supporting our kids and really make the entire environment of the school a place where learning is fun, but it's also safe and it's also not so stressful. Perfect. I know this might be in that state-by-state -state resource that you mentioned that we'll definitely put in the show notes page. Are there differences between states in burden of proof and kind of who, you know, is it the school's job to prove that your child doesn't need resources versus is it the parent's job to prove that your child does need resources? You Hopefully you won't get to that point in your discussions and in your meetings where you're trying to fight for something or you're trying to prove that your child needs something. But if it gets to that point, really it all comes down to documentation. So there's been different case law on this and I don't want to go into all the legal pieces of this because it may depend on your state. It may depend on how that plays out with your particular situation. And again, I want to mention that as well, just legal disclaimers that I'm not a lawyer. So if you do have legal issues with your school and you feel like they're not providing the education that your child needs, you may want to hire an attorney to help you 
prove that your child is not getting the education that the school has agreed to give them. But I think it's really, it's a shared responsibility. You know, so this is, we've gone back and forth on this and really it's a shared responsibility. Whoever feels like something isn't being done or needs to be done really does need to provide evidence to that effect and kind of show, you know, show why they believe that. Um, I know you mentioned free and appropriate public education. Are there any other like kind of keywords that it would be helpful for, for parents to know in terms of either their rights or things that just kind of make action happen or make people's ears perk up because it might show (laughs) that you're not just an emotional mom, but that you've done a little research and that you know kind of what you're talking about to us enough of an extent to have, you know, educated conversation about this. The free appropriate public education, the key word there is appropriate. You want to remind everybody at the table that we're talking about what's most appropriate for my child and having my child in this testing situation where the anxiety is so debilitating that he's not able to show his competence in this area is not an appropriate way to evaluate him. So we need to give him an accommodation, give him small groups, let him sit in a quiet place, whatever, whatever that is that we've agreed on where it's so that it's a more appropriate situation. So I think if you use the word appropriate frequently when you're talking about it, they'll, they know what that means. They know that you know that you don't want to say he deserves the best education. I want my child to get the best. No child in that school district is allowed to get the best of anything. Everybody gets the average of everything, unfortunately, and there's case law about that as well. Although things are kind of turning a little bit, there's been recent cases where things are leaning more towards student rights and parent rights. Um, So that's good. That's good news. But again, consult. There's another resource you might want to consult, and that's Rights Law. Rights Law is a website, and um, they do trainings for parents frequently that's really good about kind of helping you understand what your rights are, understand exactly what all those buzzwords are that you want to use. And it really depends on what you're looking for. If you're concerned about uh, the way the testing is being done or if you're concerned about the environment, uh, you want to make sure the environment is free from harassment and that the child is being treated, you know, with equitability as far as, you know, what, what his needs are. There's lots of things that you can find from that website too. So that's a really good resource as well. Are there any last things that maybe I didn't ask that I should have because I didn't know to ask to share with parents regarding education and advocating for their child? You need to keep the goal in mind, no matter what it is that you're fighting for or asking for or advocating for, what is your end goal? Do you want a child who, who has an education so that they can go to an Ivy League college? Or do you want a child who is happy and satisfied with their life and feeling like they're making a contribution, whatever that looks like? Or is it something in between, right? So you want to look at social emotional goals as well as academic goals and come up with a balance somewhere in the middle. Because I think it's easy for parents to try to shoot for the moon with everything and say, I want this and I want this and I want this and I want this and my child's going to have this therapy and they're going to do this kind of intervention. And you throw so many things into the IEP that you're really overwhelming the child with therapies and interventions and they get to the point where they are going to feel stupid and frustrated because they feel, you know, they have to go to that special class or whatever to get that intervention. So really be sure to keep your end goal in mind, think about social emotional needs, think about the mental health of the child. Really, we all just want our kids to be happy in the end. Having success academically can make our kids happy, but it's not the only thing 
in the world that's important. I think relationships are key. Relationships with your educators, they need to feel like they are part of a community in school. They need to have friends that they feel they belong with. Those are all things you want to look at even when you're looking at placement because placement is also part of your IEP. You may be asked um, to put your child in a special school. You know, there are different schools that, uh, that accommodate different kinds of needs. For example, we, my child went to a school for the deaf. There are pros and cons to all different kinds of placements, but look not just at the, at the academic needs, but look also at the emotional needs and look at what's going to make your kid happy and really involve your child in those decisions because eventually we want them to be able to make independent decisions for themselves. It might not happen immediately at age 18. Some kids take a longer road and special education goes all the way up to 21, by the way. So if your child does need a little extra time to complete some of these academic goals, that's okay. Be aware of what your child's needs are in a global sense and make sure that that is what you focus on because getting into all the nitpicky, you know, well, you didn't, you know, this line of the IEP is incorrect. We need to change the wording. It's really a waste of time. Look at what the overall goal is. Sometimes less is more and really focus on what uh, the primary needs are. That is such great advice. It's really important to just have a clear definition of success, really, and so to keep your eye on the prize. So great advice. Yeah, and if school isn't working out for your kid, they don't have to go to that school. They don't have to go to school. You could homeschool. You could do homebound instruction. You can do partial days. You take a break, come back. I mean, there's all different things that can happen. I just don't think it's, I think it's important not to force the child, you know, a square peg into a round hole. If it's not working, it's not working. You know, we, I think as a society and as school systems, we need to look at what works for individual kids, not try to stick kids into programs that are pre-prepared to supposedly meet everybody's needs. They're not. It's not meeting the needs of some of our kids. And so looking at other alternative forms of what a, what a good education looks like is really important. I'm a, I'm a huge supporter of public education, but at the same time, I think we really need a change of paradigm in how we're approaching working with kids with trauma, kids with ACEs, kids with any kind of adverse experience, because it's affecting the way they're learning. And if we have an environment that's safe, where they feel they belong, where they feel they have uh, some choices, they have a voice, then they're going to have so much more success. And so that's what I hope to see more. And I'm excited to, as a classroom teacher, to try to influence the schools and try to change the paradigm a little bit to help all of our kids. Yeah, I would love to see that happen. So Sandy, thanks so much for your time today. You gave great information. I know it's going to be super applicable to a lot of our listeners. And so I'm really grateful for your expertise in this area. Well, thanks, Melissa. I appreciate it. I hope you, I wish you all the success. Melissa, I really appreciate Sandy's interview. I mean, she gave us so much great information and shared from her wisdom and expertise. And I know that I appreciate it. And I know our listeners are going to appreciate it too. Yes, Cindy had such good advice. She has graciously provided us with a resource for our listeners. It is two full pages, single spaced of IEP accommodations for students with trauma and ACEs. So you can grab that as well as a lot of the links that we mentioned for rights law and and the Directory of Parent Training and Information Centers and the Community Parent Resource Center. All of those links and the download are available at the show notes, which you can find at theadoptionconnection.com slash seven.
If you want to connect further with Sandy, you can find her at her website, which is adoptionrootsandwings.com. She's also the administrator for a Facebook group called Families in Flight and another one called Teaching with Connection. We've come to the part in the podcast that we call Mentor Moments, where we answer a listener's question. Today's question is this. My biggest parenting challenge is bonding with my toddler. Can you give me some suggestions? Such a great question. And we did bring a toddler home once upon a long time ago. I would say one of my favorite ways to bond with a toddler, well, really bond with anyone, is food. Because <laughs> I, I love to eat and I love food. One of the keys to make food a really great bonding experience is to create a pattern of yeses through the feeding ritual. So if you think about you know, babies, we are able to give babies a lot of yeses. And we need to do that whenever we're bonding with anyone else other than a baby too. And so instead of maybe giving your toddler like a whole bag of goldfish, you can actually create a whole bag of yeses by you holding the bag and having your toddler ask for each goldfish with respect. And that could be with, you know, tiny little two-year-old words, or um, it could be sign language. And then every time they ask, you immediately and quickly give a big joyful yes and hand them the goldfish or the snack or whatever you're working with. And the great thing about that is instead of just one yes, like, yes, you may have a snack and here's a bag of goldfish, you're creating a lot of yeses. And it really is a very quick way to start that attachment process with your toddler. Yeah, I, I agree with that. We, I once played a game with my, I think it was probably my little boys, although it might have been my younger girls too, where I wanted them to practice asking for things with respect. And I wanted to sort of practice saying yes, because that doesn't always come naturally for me. And so I used M&Ms. And they would ask for an M&M and I'd say, yes, in a really kind of exaggerated way. And I tried with the ones who would tolerate it, I would put the M&M in their mouth. Now, I did have some kids who couldn't tolerate that. That was too too close. But anyhow, it was fun. I think we maybe did it a couple times, but it was a lot of fun. And they actually remember that and so do I. If I were to recommend one thing for um, bonding with a toddler, it was actually with just about any child, I would say it would be rocking in a rocking chair. It is so powerful to hold a child and rock them. For me, what I did, I mean, some of it came naturally, but I actually intentionally set aside time to rock my child every single day. And, you know, you could say some kids won't tolerate this very very well. You may need to start with a really small length of time, like a few minutes, and then try to build. But if they like it, I mean, I would be in that rocking chair as much as you can maybe stand Use it as a time to have some close proximity and touch. Use it as a time to make eye contact with them, read them stories. Um, But mostly, you know, they're going to be close to your heart and your heartbeat and um, being held in your arms. And that builds some safety. And I just think it's really, really good for the relationship. And, you know, we're, we're made for rocking. When we're walking around when we're pregnant, the baby feels that rocking movement. And so they've already experienced this. And so hopefully taking them back to that feeling will be a comforting and bonding experience. Now, Melissa has learned some things about how this also affects the brain. And since she is my resident brain science nerd, she's going to talk about that. Yeah. And so this brain science piece is also helpful for those of you who are not Lisa and not as naturally nurturing as she is because rocking with anybody other than a baby just never probably would ever occur to me. But if I know that it's good for your brain, I will do it. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. So we know that activities that kind of create a really solid, healthy foundation of brain health and brain structure for our kids um, are activities that are four things, rhythmic, relational, repetitive, and sensory. Rocking is all of those things. It's rhythmic and repetitive. You're going to do it in relationship. Even if you have a toddler who won't like sit on your lap, you could even, if you have a porch swing, like swing side by side. And then it's sensory. It's going to stimulate the vestibular system, which is kind of the thing that tells us where we are in space. Rocking Mm -hmm. is a phenomenal activity for bonding and brain development. If you're thinking about buying a rocking chair, I would encourage you to buy something bigger than what you think you might need because you may have a child who can't actually tolerate being held, but would be willing to sit next to you and maybe with your arm around them. Honestly, we've had a couple chairs that weren't very attractive, but they were the most useful tool I had for building attachment and I recommend it so highly. Something that goes right along with rocking but expands into other areas is playful engagement. We hear about playful engagement as a means of building attachment and connection and there's so many small playful things you can do. Honestly, Melissa and I both confess that we are not good at play like board games and those kinds of things I'm just not very good at. But there are all kinds of small things that you could do with a toddler that would be playful. And one tiny thing I would recommend is we used to do little finger games with our kids um, with little rhymes and little things you did with your hands. And we had one that our kids in particular really loved about a, a bunny jumping in its rabbit hole. There's a great book that we want to recommend to you called I Love You Rituals by Becky Bailey to give you great little little playful things you can do with your kids, little rituals to help you build connection. Yeah. So the book has everything from positive nursery rhymes to finger plays, silly interactions, relaxing and soothing things, hide and seek games, cuddling. So things you could maybe even do in that rocking chair and even physical games. So it's a super practical buy and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So if you would like to submit a question for a future episode, you can send us an email to email at theadoptionconnection.com or call and record your question at 208-741-3880. If you need more personalized help, we do offer private coaching. For more information on that, you can head to theadoptionconnection.com slash services. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.